Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of Podcast 360, your go-to resource for medical news and clinical updates. I'm your moderator, Jessica Ganga, with Consultant 360, a multidisciplinary medical information network. IBS is one of the most common gastrointestinal disorders worldwide, affecting approximately 15% of the world's population, according to the National Institutes of Health. About 40% of patients with IBS experience symptoms of the subtype IBSD. Here with us today to talk about medical therapies for IBSD is Dr. Gregory Sayek, who is a gastroenterologist at Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today, Dr. Sayek. Let's dive right in. To start off, can you please provide an overview of your article, Medical Therapies for Diarrhea Predominant Irritable Bowel Syndrome? Well, this was conceived as part of a broader series in the gastroenterology clinics of North America that was really focusing on irritable bowel syndrome. And so here we were really attempting to try to provide for clinicians a current review of the available treatment options for irritable bowel syndrome, both FDA-approved options as well as non-FDA-approved options, and even some of the other things that we sometimes will offer patients that have some evidence in support of their use, including supplements, for example, as well. So we try to provide an overview and then also try to provide some of the evidence in support of the use of these agents to manage our IBSD symptoms for our patients. What is the importance of taking a careful history and examination in patients with symptoms of IBSD? Right. Well, so the key here really is what I think most experts are now advocating for, which is a positive diagnostic strategy. And what we mean by this is that through the conduction of a thorough history, a physical exam, and really some very limited laboratory work, we can, with a high level of confidence, establish a diagnosis of IBS and accordingly then uh, proceed with the initiation of therapy. So I think one of the misconceptions with IBS is that it's a diagnosis of exclusion, that the clinician has to go through an extensive and exhaustive evaluation, including a lot of testing, such as imaging studies, extensive lab work, endoscopic evaluation, and so forth. What our evidence in the literature supports, however, is that with a thorough history, in the absence of the so-called red flag features or alarm symptoms here, we're talking about things such as blood in the stool, we're talking about weight loss, nocturnal symptoms, anemia, things of that sort, we can be very confident with a high degree of accuracy in our diagnosis of IBS. And so that's really why it's important to conduct a thorough history and physical and some basic lab work prior to making a diagnosis. A multidimensional approach is beneficial for managing patients with IBSD. How should a patient with IBSD be managed? That's a great question. So I think, unfortunately, we as physicians often rely heavily on pharmacotherapies for the management of disorders, including IBSD, irritable bowel syndrome. And in reality, the most effective approach is a multimodal approach, an approach that implements strategies from a variety of different mechanisms. So certainly there's a major role for pharmacotherapy, and we're fortunate that we have an ever-increasing number of options 
available to us to manage IBS symptoms, but there are other strategies that have equally good evidence in support of their use to help these patients, including psychological therapies, such as cognitive behavioral therapy and hypnotherapy, for example, supplement and herbal therapies, so-called complementary approaches, you have, have evidence in support of them. Even some lifestyle modifications, things like attention to sleep and, and exercise and so forth. So when I see a patient with IBS, I ultimately hope to bring all of these things into the equation. I like to make the analogy with my patients that managing IBS is, is kind of like playing golf. You know, you're not going to be a good golfer simply by having a great drive. You've got to be able to play all of the clubs in your bag, including your putter, if you want to be able to be a, an excellent golfer. And in a similar way, managing IBS relies on us to pull out all of these different options at times, sometimes using several of them in the same patient. There is a growing number of emerging therapies in this area. What are they, would you say? Well, you know, this is really an exciting time for those of us who manage IBS regularly and for our patients as well. Again, because we do have this increasing number of, of options available and data, good evidence in support of using these options. So from a pharmacotherapy perspective, over the last several years, we've had an emergence of the secretagogue agents. These have fallen under the class of the guanolite cyclase C or GCC agonists, such as linaclotide and placanotide. But more recently, we've had a new class of agents, a, a sodium proton exchange blockade agent in tenapinor, which also is effective for the management of IBS here in the, on the constipated side of things. We also have an increasing number of supplements that have good evidence in support of their use, including in the case of IBSD, things such as peppermint, which has now been studied in several different clinical trials and shown to be beneficial. Glutamine also having shown benefit, potentially in particular in those patients that develop symptoms after an acute infection or the so-called post-infectious IBSD patient. Bile acid sequestrants are a class that have gotten a lot of attention here, the notion being that patients with IBSD, approximately a third of these individuals may actually have some bile acid malabsorption as part of the mechanism underlying their symptoms. The gut microbiota has been an area of much interest of late. And uh, so use of antibiotic strategies, use of probiotics and prebiotics all have been studied and are gaining additional momentum and demonstrated value in managing our IBS uh, D patients. So really, again, it's a very exciting time that we have all of these different strategies emerging. Whereas if you look back at the early phase of my career 20 years ago, we had very, very few options to offer our patients. So I think, you know, both as a provider and from the patient perspective, it's, it's certainly a time to be optimistic about the future. Yeah, it sounds like there's a wide range of treatment options available to patients with IBS and IBSD. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, partly I think it depends on the patient's experiences, what treatments they've tried in the past, and what their responses to those treatments have been. But I also like to take the opportunity to explore what the patient's interests are. Some patients have uh, more of a desire to try pharmacologic options. They're interested in medications. 
while others may be particularly focused on diet and lifestyle changes in an effort to manage their symptoms. So I look at our portfolio of treatment options as, as a menu, and we, we review these with the patients, try to get a sense of what they're interested in trying. There's no single right answer for any particular patient, and there's equally no one-size-fits-all approach. So it really does become an individualized strategy. And that's what I really like about treating these patients is, is the fact that you do get to work with the patient in a collaborative way to try to get their symptoms under control. Speaking about the wide range of treatment options for patients with IBSD, what would you say are the gaps in the research of IBSD and its treatment and what's next for research on this topic? Well, I think where we are right now with the management of IBS more generally, and certainly IBSD, is the point where we're ready to, I think, take the next step in trying to develop strategies to develop therapeutic approaches that are based on biomarkers in the individual. So whereas previously, we've really relied exclusively on symptoms to define the disorder, as we discussed earlier make a diagnosis and proceed with treatment, I think we're now coming upon an era where we will be able to employ biomarkers, things like profiles of the microbiota in the stool, things like genotypes and and expression of neurotransmitter levels, and make then a educated strategic decision about what mechanism may be driving that individual symptoms. And also then to select a therapy, which we think will be more likely to positively influence that mechanism for that individual. So this is, again, I think another area that's very exciting in our field is that over the next, say, 10 years, I I anticipate that we will be able to even improve outcomes with the existing therapies that we have available by just pairing the right therapy with that patient. So I think this is really an area of ongoing research, but also likely progress within the next decade. What would you say are the overall take-home messages from our conversation today? I think the the main points that I'd like to convey to the audience is that IBS is a, a diagnosis that is based in symptoms and limited evaluation. The ACG guidelines that were published just last year recommend the use of a positive diagnostic strategy to make that diagnosis and proceed with therapy beyond that. Again, underscoring the point that we have a multitude of different treatment strategies, both pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic, that this provides opportunities for our patients in a multimodal approach to managing their symptoms, and that with the application of these current available strategies, fortunately, we are able to improve symptoms and, and the quality of life of our patients in the majority of cases. So, Again, I think the future is very bright in the field of DGBIs and irritable bowel syndrome, and I expect that we're going to continue to make great progress over the next decade with additional therapies and moreover, the individualization of those therapies for our patients. Well, thank you, Dr. Sayek, for joining us today. Is there anything that you'd like to add that maybe I didn't ask about or anything that we didn't cover? No, I don't think so in particular. I think I would just point out that there are a lot of great organizations out there that provide additional information for providers and patients. The IFFGD, the International Foundation for GI Disorders, has some excellent resources for providers and patients both, as well as the Rome Foundation, 
and the American Neurogastroenterology and Motility Societies, all of these organizations do excellent work in providing quality evidence-based information for patients and providers and organizations that I'm proud to be a part of. Great. Thank you for providing that additional information. And again, thank you for taking the time out of your day to speak with us. Thank you very much, Jessica.